Okay, today's lesson is Jacob building a family and a flock for himself. And uh, this is a story that was a real uh, eye-opener for me personally years ago when uh, I stumbled on some things that I didn't expect. So I'll share those with you. I think there's there are two surprises in this lesson. One of them is for Jacob on the night, on the morning after he got married. He got a big surprise then. <laughs> And uh, uh, I think there may be a surprise at the end of the lesson for, for, uh, for the rest, most of the rest of us. So uh, uh, we will we'll, we'll start off. We're going to start in Genesis chapter 29 and verse 1. I'm going to start reading there in a minute. First, just a little recap of some background here. The twins Jacob and Esau... From a couple of lessons ago, Jacob tricks his father. He deceives his father into giving him a blessing instead of giving it to Esau, his older brother. That was in Genesis 26. Esau is furious about his brother's treachery and plots to kill Jacob. After the dad dies. That's right, exactly. As soon as his father dies, he's gonna. he wants to kill him. And Jacob's mother wants to spare Jacob, so she comes up with a, a plan to send him to her brother Laban until the storm passes over and Esau's anger subsides. So she arranges, she persuades Isaac to have Jacob sent to Haran in Mesopotamia to find a wife from among Laban's daughters. That's also in Genesis 26. On the way to Haran, Jacob stops in Bethel, puts his head on a rock, goes to sleep, and he sees a, a, has an amazing dream where he sees a ladder or a stairway going up to heaven. Angels of God ascending and descending on it, and we talked about that in the last lesson. And the Lord promises two things to, to Jacob. He says that he would bring him back to that place, so he'd have a successful journey, and he gives him the, the promise that was given to Abraham your seed shall be as the dust of the earth. So he would, he's promised that he would have many descendants. That's in Genesis 28, verses 13 and 15. Those two promises play into what we're about to read. We're going to have some, some longer readings in this lesson. Genesis chapter 29. And all the details of this story are important and will come together at the end of the lesson. So pay attention to the details. Genesis 29, first 21 verses. Now Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the east, to, to Laban. So he looked and saw a well in the field, and behold, there were three flocks of sheep lying by it. For out of that well they watered the flocks, and a large stone was on the well's mouth. Now all the flocks would be gathered there, and they would roll the stone from the well's mouth, water the sheep, and put the stone back in its place on the well's mouth. So Jacob said to them, My brethren, where are you from? And they said, We are from Haran. Then he said to them, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. So he said to them, Is he well? They said, He is well. Look, his daughter Rachel is coming with the sheep. Then he said, Is it still? It is still 
high day. It is not time for the cattle to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go and feed them. But they said, we cannot until all the shepherds are gathered together. And they have rolled the stone from the well's mouth. Then we will water the sheep. Now while he was still speaking with them, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. And it came to pass when Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob, but his mother's brother, Jacob went near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Then Jacob kissed Rachel, lifted up his voice, and wept. So Jacob told Rachel he was her father's relative and Rebekah's son, and she ran and told her father these words. Then it came to pass when Laban heard the report about Jacob, his sister's son, that he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to his house. So he told Laban all these things. Now Laban said to him, Surely you're my bone and my flesh. And he stayed with him for about a month. Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my brother, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what should your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of, his, of the elder was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were delicate, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. Now Jacob loved Rachel, so he said, I will serve you seven years for Rachel, your younger daughter. So Laban said, It is better that I give her to you than to another man. Stay with me. So, La so Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife, for my days are fulfilled, that I may go into her. So let's just review the elements of the story. Jacob obeys his father's instructions and he goes to Haran. At a well he meets some shepherds and asks if they know Laban, his relative. The shepherds point out that Laban's daughter Rachel is approaching with her father's sheep. When Jacob sees Rachel, he is overcome with emotion. He weeps, explains who he is, that he's a relative. Rachel runs to tell her father Laban, who welcomes Jacob. Because after all, this is his nephew, his sister's son. Jacob stays with him for a month. And then it says in, in verses 16 and 17 that Laban has two daughters. Leah, the older daughter, in this translation I just read, it says her eyes were delicate. Some translations say her eyes were weak or perhaps even sickly. But there was, there was something about her eyes that's going on here. Some of the early Christian writers interpreted it as her, her eyes were weak. She couldn't see that well. In contrast, it says that Rachel, the younger daughter, was beautiful in form and appearance. So Jacob falls in love with Rachel, and he offers to serve. It's his idea. He offers to serve Laban for seven years to get her hand in marriage. Laban agrees to the proposal. So it's a great love story, and it's a very, very touching line in verse, verse 20. It says, So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed only a few days to him because of the love he had for her. So it's uh, very, very touching, the love that he had for her. He, he uh, just seemed like the time passed very quickly for him. At the end of the seven years, he asked to take Rachel for his wife. So, so far... So good. Well, there's, there's a big surprise that happens next. We're going to read verses 22 to 25. Now, 
Laban gathered together all the men of the place and made a wedding feast. Then it came to pass in the evening, he took Leah his daughter and brought her to Jacob, and he went into her. So Laban gave his maid Zilpah to his daughter Leah as a handmaiden. Then it came to pass in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And he said to Laban, What is this you have done to me? Was it not for Rachel that I served you? Why then have you deceived me? So this was a, a bit of a shocker. Laban holds a wedding feast. On the wedding night, he switches the daughters and sends in Leah to the marriage bed instead of Rachel. Sends in the older sister. He's been waiting and serving for seven years. He's in love with the younger daughter. and He switches, switches and sends in Leah instead. Now, something I thought about reading this time that I hadn't, hadn't struck me before, Leah is obviously cooperating with her father in this scam. Okay, she's not the innocent party here. So she knows what's going on. She's cooperating with her father. And her father sweetens the deal by giving her one of his maids, Zilpah, to her. So, uh, so they're both in on it together. And in the morning, after the wedding has been consummated, Jacob wakes up and it says, Behold, it was Leah. So this was, it was the shock of his life. Now, let me, let me ask a question. Is, is a story like this believable? Could this really happen that somebody could marry? They're not, they're not identical twin sisters. Okay, they're, they're, They look different. He's in love with one. Uh, no interest in the other one. Could this actually happen in yeah. real life? Uh, yeah. Okay. Well, let, let me... Uh, yeah, it, it, the way we do weddings, it couldn't because you have the, uh, you know, you've got the, everybody's marching down the aisle and, and the, the lights are all on bright. And, and then the part could be like, okay, I'm going to switch you over for you. Your, yeah, your, now you can kiss the bride. and So the, all, the way that we do weddings, that would make no sense. However, Allison and I lived in Albania a few years ago, and I remember a conversation. I don't know whether it was Allison asked the question or I did ask the question, but, but it was to a guy who was maybe a little older than, 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 than I was at the time. Now, realize that Albania is a very different country with very different cultures and traditions. And, and so the question was asked to this older Albanian gentleman, when did you first meet your wife? And he said, well, it was after the wedding. Well, I said, wait a minute, no. You must mean that you met her on the wedding day. You, you, you met her, because I knew that there was a, there's a tradition of arranged marriages in Albania in the past, in previous generations. It, there's still plenty of countries in the world where they have arranged marriages. So I thought... Oh, it must have been that they selected his wife beforehand, and then at the wedding ceremony, they he got to see his wife when they did, did the, the wedding. He said, no, no, it wasn't like that, because she was covered up when we did the, when, we, when, when, the, when the wedding took place, she was covered up. So I didn't really get to see her until after the wedding was over. And uh, now talk about a surprise wedding package. You know, imagine unwrapping the bride and seeing who you're spending the rest of your life with. And this is a wedding gift that you can't take back. So uh, uh, that was it, th th this. This was uh, in another cultures. I can imagine in other cultures where this could actually something like this could potentially happen if the bride is covered up. Or the other possibility. 
historically, what has been associated with wedding banquet feasts? A little wine. A little wine, or a lot of wine. And let's toast this person, let's toast that person. So a lot of alcohol is traditionally been associated with weddings in many, many cultures. So it's entirely possible that, keep in mind that Laban is trying to deceive his son-in-law. Maybe he just said, hey, let's have another round of drinks and celebrate. Uh, let's celebrate my, let's have a toast for my sister. Let's have a toast for your father. Just keeping the, the alcohol running. So one way or another, whether it was he was he was inebriated or exhausted or for some other reason, it's entirely believable to me that something like this could actually happen. So our sympathies would naturally go out to Jacob. You think, wow, he's just served his father-in-law for seven years madly in love with Rachel and he wakes up the next day to find that the daughter that he, he's now married to the daughter that he really didn't want. However, let's think back at something that Jacob had done. Seven years earlier, he conspired with his mother to deceive his father Isaac. Jacob switched the two brothers at the time and it appeared that he succeeded in getting away with it. He got the desired blessing from his father, but he pulled the switch of the two brothers on his father who couldn't see what was going on. So now seven years later, he runs into someone who's even more deceitful and crafty than he is, a true Olympic world-class <laughs> deceiver, his uncle Laban. So while Jacob had switched the brothers, Laban switched the two sisters, his daughters. And of all possible times to do this, he does it on Jacob's wedding night after seven years of waiting for the big event. So I think of the father-daughter deceitful duo of Laban and Leah who conspired to deceive Jacob, were even worse than the mother-son pair of Rebekah and Jacob, who conspired to deceive Isaac. So you see the parallels here. So I think God has a great sense of timing and of justice. Jacob, although it looked to Esau and to Isaac that he got away with something here, this is the rest of the story. When he de deceived his father and defrauded his brother, the Lord waited seven years for the exact perfect moment to bring about exquisite justice and to basically drop the piano of discipline on his head on, his, on the morning after his wedding, the most vulnerable moment. He would learn a lesson about deceit administered at the hand of a true master deceiver, a lesson that he would never, ever forget. And perhaps we can learn something in this story about how the Lord tends to operate, how the Lord works. Throughout history, I'm sure you've asked the question yourself, I certainly have. Why is this person allowed to get away with what they're doing and even to prosper? Even in the church, to look around and see 
leaders in the church who are getting away with things, and you think, well, why is God allowing this to happen? This isn't fair. It's not just. It's not right. God should be doing something about it. It seems like nothing's happening. Many spiritual men in the Old Testament wrestled with this question. Job, in Job chapter 21, he says, he asked the question, why do the wicked live and become old, yet become mighty in power? Why is this going on? He later concludes in chapter 21 that their day is coming, that God will put out the lamp of the ungodly and bring destruction on them in the future at the right time. David asks in Psalm 94 verse 3, Lord, how long the wicked, how long will the wicked triumph? Why are you allowing this to happen? Jeremiah in Jeremiah chapter 12 verse 1 asks the same question. Why does the way of the wicked prosper? Why are those happy who deal so treacherously? Recently on a, I was on a plane ride back from, on a business trip back from Kansas City to Boston, or actually it was, the, it was the, the second leg of the trip from Chicago to Boston, and I happened to be seated in the same row with a man who was, he was a police officer, but he devoted his spare time to helping people get out of religious cults. So we had a very lively conversation for the next few hours, as you can imagine. Uh, about all kinds of things. But he was telling me stories, horrifying stories, about people who were vulnerable, who were pulled into religious cults where the leaders preyed on the weakness of the people. And they lost all their money. They lost their freedom. Many of these people, the the, women were sexually abused by the leaders of the group who were convincing the people that either they were the Messiah or they were a prophet or for whatever reason that they had to do exactly what they were told. And they were, they were using Christ and the, and the Bible to manipulate and control other people. And he was complaining. They said the laws of the country, with the laws protecting religious freedom and free speech in this country, it's very hard to protect people who are being preyed on by these horrible predators. Uh, so... Uh, that's an unusual ministry, but uh, it was it was very eye-opening to have a discussion with him and read some of the, the information that he gave me about what's going on. But now, Many times I've wrestled with the question, why are you letting this person get away with this, God? It, it, seems that, it seems that there's absolutely no consequence, and I think you need to deal with this person, and even suggesting to God an accelerated time schedule for doing that. But many times in the scriptures, here's one where God waited for seven years before lowering the boom. But there are many other examples as well. I I think about the story in Daniel 4. King Nebuchadnezzar is arrogant. Daniel warns him that he needs to repent, turn away from his wickedness. Twelve months after he's warned, he's wandering around his palace and he's saying, isn't this the great Babylon? that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and the honor of my majesty. At that moment in Daniel 4, verse 30, while the words are still in his mouth, the Lord intervenes, smashes him down, humbles the king, 
with madness. He's driven from men and ends up eating grass like an ox and his hair and his, his nails are growing wild until finally he repents. God waited 12 months for the right moment to, to discipline and rebuke the king. And Daniel 5 Belshazzar, the great king of Babylon, makes a feast and he brings in, he has the arrogance to bring in the gold and silver vessels that have been recovered from the temple in Jerusalem. And he and his lords are toasting and drinking and praising the gods of silver and gold and stone. At that moment, God sends a hand writing on the wall to say that his days have been numbered He's been weighed on the scales and found wanting. And that very night, he's killed and his kingdom is taken away and given to another. Or Haman, in Esther chapter 7, Haman is a high official, a wicked man in the court of the king of Persia. He builds a gallows to hang Mordecai. And the tables are turned. Who ends up getting hanged on those gallows? Haman. Haman, exactly right. So, God has a way of bringing about justice in his own perfect and exquisite way in his time. And we have to trust that God will do that even if it takes many years. Even if it doesn't happen in this life. Jesus warns us that on the day of judgment, many people will be shocked and unfavorably uh, surprised when Jesus says in Matthew chapter 70 he says that many will say t- to him Lord didn't we do this didn't we do that he'll say I never knew you away from me you who practice lawlessness so lessons to learn there about no one gets away with anything with God Jacob the deceiver seven years later God fixed his wagon Let's continue the story. Genesis chapter 29, verses 26 to 30. We'll we'll start reading in verse 25 again. Then it came to pass in the morning, behold, it was Leah, and he said to Laban, What is this you've done to me? Was it not Rachel I served, for Rachel I served you? Why then have you deceived me? Laban replied, It must not be done so in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. Fulfill her week, and I will give you this one also for the service you will render me still another seven years. Then Jacob did so and fulfilled her week. Then he gave him his daughter Rachel as wife also. Laban also gave his handmaiden Bilhah to his daughter Rachel as a handmaiden. Then Jacob also went into Rachel and he loved Rachel more than Leah, and he served with Laban still another seven years. So, I want to summarize the next, the rest of the story here in Genesis chapter 29, the beginning of verse of chapter 30. So it says, Jacob loves Rachel, but Leah is hated. So, I think it we might be tempted to feel sorry for Leah. She is the less attractive of the two sisters. She's now married, and her husband doesn't like her. Her husband really wanted her sister, and she's stuck in this marriage. 
On the other hand, let's keep in mind she was involved in tricking Jacob into marrying her for the first place. She cooperated with her father. She was married through deception. And Jacob was forced to work yet another seven years of labor for her father in the process. So uh, that's just the way it is. He loves Rachel, does not love Leah. Some translations say Leah is hated. Uh, After that is a battle of the mothers to produce offspring. So at the beginning, Rachel is barren, but Leah has four boys in a row. Reuben is the firstborn. And Leah, very sad, in Genesis 29, verse 32, Leah says, The Lord has surely looked on my humiliation. Now, therefore, my husband will love me. So she thinks, wow, I've given him a son. Now he's going to love me. Does he love her after that? No, 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 and no. No. all, All of those answers are right. The answer is no, he doesn't love her more after having a son. Then he has Simeon, the second son. Levi, the third son, and Judah, the fourth son. So she has four boys in a row. Now, Levi, the third son, is important to us because he is the forefather of Moses, Aaron, and all the priests, and the Levites, they're all descended from Levi. Judah is the fourth son. And Judah, of course, is extremely important to us. He's the forefather of David, Solomon, all the kings of Judah. And later on, it was prophesied that the Messiah, the Christ, would come from his line. The Gospel of Matthew starts off with the genealogy of Jesus. Matthew chapter 1, verse 2 says he is descended from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Judah. So Rachel sees that her sister is having children, and she is barren. So what does she do? She plots, she asks for her sister's children. She does that, but even before that, she blames her husband. She says, give me children, or else I die. In Genesis 30, verse 1, and Jacob, of course, understandably gets angry, and he says, look, I'm not God. I, I can't I can't control these things if you're not having children. It's not my it's not my fault. So she's frustrated and, and takes it out on him. He's angry, takes it out on her. Then Rachel gives her maidservant Bilhah to Jacob so that she can build up a line through her maidservant. Bilhah has two sons, Dan and Nap uh Nap, Nap, Naphtali. And uh Naphtali is maybe a familiar name in the New Testament because it says in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 1 and 2, which is quoted in Matthew 4, verses 12 to 16, that Jesus' Jesus' ministry was in Galilee, the land of Zebulun, and the land of, of Naphtali, Galilee of the Gentiles. So this is the, the territory in the north that they would inherit. So that's uh, the, the two sons of Bilhah, Dan, and uh, Naphtali. Then Leah, noticing that she has stopped bearing children and her sister is starting to catch up through her maidservant, decides to give her maidservant Zilpah to Jacob, who then has two sons, Gad and Asher. And then Leah, uh, it's kind of a funny story, she hires Jacob from Rachel for one night for her son's mandrake. She conceives a fifth son, 
and then after that has her sixth and final son. So she has Issachar and Zebulun, and then after that she has a daughter, Dinah. And then finally, after the other three women have produced children, finally it says, the Lord remembered Rachel, God listened to her and opened her womb. She conceived and brought her first, brought forth her first child, so she has the first of her two sons. So she has children offspring last. And the first of her two sons is Joseph, uh, who is a very significant figure at the end of the book of Genesis and also is mentioned by Stevens in Acts chapter 7. More about him in, in later classes. He's the last child born in Haran. And then finally, at the time that she dies, she gives birth to Benjamin as they're traveling to Canaan. So, simple overview, 12 sons, 6 born to Leah, and 2 born to each of the other 3. The 6 born to Leah include Levi and Judah, and then there are 2 born to each of the other 3, Joseph and Benjamin coming last from, from Rachel. So, uh, Jacob is concerned about, here he's been working for his father-in-law as a shepherd, and her father, his father-in-law is becoming a rather wealthy man. God is prospering the work that, that Jacob is doing, leading the flock. And he wants to be able to start to have some wealth himself because after all, he has a rather large family to take care of. So in Genesis chapter 30, we're going to read verses 25 to 33. He comes up with an idea. Now it came to pass when Rachel had born Joseph that Jacob said to Laban, Send me away that I may go to my own place in my own country. Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you, and let me go. For you know the service I have rendered you. Then Laban said to him, If I could find grace in your eyes, I would seek for it divinely. For God has blessed me by your coming. So he said, Name your wages. Name me your wages, and I will give it. Jacob replied, You know how I have served you and how numerous your cattle became with me. For what you have before I came was little, and it has increased to a great amount. The Lord has blessed you since my coming. Now, therefore, when shall I establish my own house? Thus Laban said to him, What shall I give you? Jacob replied, You shall not give me anything. If you will do this thing for me, I will again feed and keep your sheep. Let me pass through all your flocks today, removing from them all the gray sheep and all the spotted and speckled from among the goats, and these shall be my wages. So my righteousness will answer for me in time to come when the subject of my wages comes before, before you. Everyone that is not speckled and spotted among the goats and gray among the sheep will be considered stolen if it is with me. So <clears throat> let's, do, let's just process what we're reading here so far. Jacob now has four wives, 11 sons, and a daughter. He has a large family. He's fulfilled 14 years of working for Laban to get his two daughters, but he's still tending his father's sheep, his father-in-law's sheep. He now asks Laban's permission to go back to Canaan, and Laban says, look, uh, can't we work something out here? Things are going very well. What would you propose for wages? So now, now he's, he's willing to cut him a deal. And Jacob comes up with an unusual plan. He says, 
Just let me take all the gray sheep and the spotted and speckled goats from among the flock now. And the implication here is that he continued to do that going forward because he says, if at any time in the future we find anything among my, among my flock that uh, doesn't have that character, those outward characteristics, then you just assume it's been stolen. So Laban says, great idea, let's do that. Now let's, let's read what happens next. Let's read verse, verse uh, 34 and following. Then Laban said to him, Let it be according to your word. So he removed that day all the male goats that were speckled and spotted, all the female goats that were speckled and spotted, every one that had some white in it, all the gray ones among the sheep, and gave them into the hands of his sons. Then he put three days' journey between himself and Jacob, and Jacob fed the rest of Laban's flock. So, here we are, Laban pulls another fast one. He says, sure, you can have all the, the gray sheep and all the speckled and spotted goats. And then Laban goes into the flock, pulls all of those out, gives them to his sons. And he says, look, move three days away and let's let Jacob just tend all the rest of the sheep. So first of all, He's stolen all the sheep that Jacob said he wanted to take that day. He said, let's go through the flock right now and I'll take these out. So he, he's, he's taken them out for himself, for starters. And then, obviously, they're the ones that would naturally produce similar type sheep. The, 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 the sheep who are speckled and spotted are the ones who are going to tend to have speckled and spotted offspring. So he's basically cut off not only his immediate payment, but also made it extremely hard from the future. And they go three days away, so there's no possibility of interbreeding between the two groups. So he's very crafty, and he leaves Jacob to tend all the rest of his flock. So Jacob ends up prevailing in an unusual way with a very strange approach. Let's read verses 37 to 43 to see what he does. Now Jacob took for himself rods of green poplar and of the almond and chestnut trees, peeled white strips in them, tearing off the bark. So the white strips he had peeled appear on the rods as spotted. Then he placed the rods he had peeled in the gutters of the watering troughs where the flocks came to drink, should they, so they should conceive at the rods as they came to drink. So the flocks conceived before the rods, and the flocks brought forth speckled, spotted, and ash-colored speckled. But Jacob separated the male lambs and placed a speckled ram before the sheep and all that were spotted among the male lambs. Then he separated for himself flocks by themselves and did not mix them with the sheep of Laban. So, uh, thus it came to pass, whenever the sheep conceived, that Jacob placed the rods before the sheep in the gutters, so they might conceive according to the rods. But whenever the sheep had already given birth, he did not put them in. Thus it came to pass that the unmarked were Laban's and the marked were Jacob's. So the man became exceedingly rich and had many cattle and oxen, male and female servants, and camels and donkeys. So he takes branches peels the bark in strips and puts them in the watering troughs. When the flocks come to drink, 
They mate in front of these rods, and the rods, it says they look like the rods have speckles on them the way he's peeled them. So they're mating in front of these watering troughs with the speckled rods, and they come out speckled and gray and so forth. This strategy somehow works, and Jacob builds up a large flock. He becomes a very wealthy man as a result. So question, let's think about this. This seems to violate anything we would know about genetics. It, it almost sounds like this is, story is the product of some superstitious pre-scientific age, that the way that sheep have speckled sheep is that they're looking at something speckled when they're mating. So this would seem to be terribly unscientific and, and, and almost uh, just, just throwing back to an age when people didn't understand how these things worked. Well, let's just... Hold that thought for a little while until later. But I, 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 that's, that's a natural response when you hear a story like this, is that obviously this was written at a time when people didn't understand genetics. Now there's a little more to this story. In Genesis chapter 31, we're going to read the first 13 verses because it gives a little more insight to what's going on here. Now Jacob heard the words of Laban's son, saying, Jacob has taken away all that, our fa that was our father's, and from our father's property acquired all this wealth. So Jacob saw Laban's countenance, and indeed it was not favorable toward him as before. Then the Lord said to Jacob, Return to your father's land and to your family, and I'll be with you. So Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah to the fields where the flock were, and said to them, I see your father's countenance. It is not favorable toward me as before. But the God of my father has been with me. Now you know that with all my might I served your father. Yet your father deceived me and changed my wages ten times with respect to the male lambs. But God did not allow him to harm me. If he that said thus, the speckled shall be your wages, then all the flocks were speckled. But if he said thus, the white shall be your wages, then all the sheep bore white. So God has taken away all your father's cattle and given them to me. Now it came to pass when the flocks conceived, I lifted my eyes and saw in a dream, and behold, the male goats and the rams that were speckled, spotted, and ash-colored speckled were mating with the sheep and the goats. Then the angel of God spoke to me in a dream, saying, Jacob, thus I said, Here I am. So he said, Lift your eyes now and see all the male goats and the rams mating with the sheep and the goats are speckled, spotted, and ash-colored speckled. For I have seen everything Laban is doing to you. I am the God who appeared to you at Bethel, where you anointed the pillar and made a vow to me. That now then, arise, get out of this land, and return to the land of your nativity, and I will be with you. So, Jacob is building up a huge flock with this unusual mating technique that he is using. Laban's sons and Laban himself get very upset. He's, he, they feel like they're the ones getting ripped off here. Uh, they're upset at how welcome, wealthy Jacob is becoming through this sheep mating arrangement. The Lord appears to Jacob in a dream and tells him it's time to go back to Canaan. And uh, uh, Jacob shares this with Rachel and Leah. And Jacob recounts that Laban had changed his wages ten times. So when Laban saw that 
it, he was that the sheep were producing the gray and the speckled and the spotted. He said, "Oh no, no, no! I didn't mean gray, speckled, and spotted. I mean you get all the pure white sheep, and then they produce all pure white." You say, "No, no! I meant you produce you get all the black sheep." So he kept ten times. He changed the, his wages, but no matter what Laban did, those were the exact kind of sheep that were produced. So God triumphed. The angel of the Lord came to him in a dream and explained the Lord was protecting him and providing him the right kind of offspring from among the sheep and the goats. Now, for many years, I love the Old Testament and I taught the Old Testament for many, many years. I would teach through the book of Genesis and teach this story. And what I taught was pretty consistent with what we've just covered right here. Just basically, this is the facts of the story. There's things to learn about the, uh, uh, the God paying back justice through Laban the deceiver to a deceitful man. And several years ago, I started reading through, for other reasons, the early Christians. And as I was reading through that, I read Irenaeus and then Justin Martyr after that dialogue with Trifo, and they talked about this story. And they pointed out some things and made some connections which completely opened up my eyes. I want to share those with you for your consideration. Now, the early Christian writers are not writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. You can take it or leave it, but I want you to think about this. There's a quote from Irenaeus. I'll, I'll post that in the notes. That's in Nicene Fathers, Volume 1, page 493. Irenaeus was a Christian who lived the years 130 to 200. He was a disciple of Polycarp, who was a disciple of the Apostle John. So he's just two generations removed from the Apostles. And then a quote from Justin Martyr, who lived around between the years 100 and 165 AD from Samaria, in his dialogue with Trypho, a Jew. In his dialogue with Trypho, they're arguing over whether Jesus was the Son of God or not. And the battleground for the discussion is the Old Testament. So Justin, even though he's a, a Samaritan, is using the Old Testament to prove to Trypho that all of the things that, were, that happened with Jesus were prophesied about and contained in the Hebrew Scriptures. I'm going to read from a quote from uh, Dialogue with Trypho, chapter 134, which is the Nicene Fathers, volume 1, page 267. So this is from Justin Martyr talking about this story. For in the marriages of Jacob, I shall mention what dispensations and prophecy were accomplished in order that you may thereby know that your teachers, so here he's referring to the teachers of Trypho, which would be the, Jew, the Jewish teachers, your teachers never looked at the divine motive which prompted each act, but only at the groveling and corrupting passion. So he's saying, basically saying, I want to explain to you the reason why he married these, these two women. It wasn't because of lust. There's a, there's a deeper significance to the story. Attend, therefore, to what I say. The marriages of Jacob were types of that which Christ was about to accomplish. For it was not lawful to Jacob to marry two sisters at once. And he serves Laban for one of the daughters, and being deceived in the obtaining of the younger, he again serves seven years. Now Leah is your people and synagogue. It's referring to the Jews, the older sister. But Rachel is our church. 
talking about the Christians. And for these and for the servants of both Christ even now, Jacob served Laban for the speckled and many spotted sheep. And Christ served even to the slavery of the cross for the various and many formed races of mankind, acquiring them by the blood and mystery of the cross. Let's think about that. Think about what he's saying is going on in this story. This was written over a thousand years before the birth of Jesus. He's saying that the two sisters represent the Jews and the Christians. The older sister would be the Jews and the younger sister, the Christians. Now consider what Paul says in Galatians 4 and Romans chapter 9 about the two brothers. When you have two brothers together, the greater blessing goes to the younger brother, not the older brother which is foreshadowing. Paul says he's talking about Ishmael and Isaac, and I think he was also talking about Jacob and Esau, is that it's the younger brother who ends up getting the greater blessing. Uh, Justin is saying it's the same thing in this story, where it's the younger sister of the two who is the one who's really loved and gets the greater blessing, that Jacob served for both just as Jesus did. And Jacob's greatest love and desire was actually for the younger sister, as Jesus' desire was for the church, his beloved bride. The second point, in this story, let's think about it, although Justin doesn't mention it, the answer is obvious. Who does Laban represent? If, If the two sisters represent the Jews and the Christians, and Jacob represents Jesus, who is Laban? Who would Laban represent? Laban is the great deceiver. The great deceiver. Who is the great deceiver in the Bible? The devil. That's right. Jesus said regarding Satan in John 8, 44, it says, He does not stand in the truth because there is no truth in him. When he speaks a lie, he speaks from his own resources For he is a liar and the father of it. From the New King James. Satan is the great deceiver. He's the liar. He's the master of the bait and switch. He dangles the bait out and then he switches things up. He doesn't come through on the things that he promises and he pulls pulls them away. He's the deceiver, the enslaver. The cunning champion of the bait and switch who doesn't want to give up control over his kingdom. And of course, Jacob is foreshadowing Jesus in this story. He's the good shepherd. He served for both the Jews and the Christians. Despite Satan's treachery, Jesus is building up a mighty flock, plundering from among Satan's own flock to build his own. And his flock is made up of some of all kinds. Like the multicolored flock assembled by Jacob, that his flock, the flock of Jesus, would have some of all kinds of people representing all colors, all tribes, all nations. It would have the black sheep, the black people from Africa. It would have the blonde people from Northern Europe. It would have the brown people from 
India and the Middle East. And it would have the Asian people, the people from China. It would have the Native Americans. It would have all different colors of people in it, just like the flock that Jacob built up. And, in case you might have missed it, the flock is built through the wood and the water. The peeled wood branches and the watering troughs. In many, so many places the early Christians saw that the wood, when it appeared in the Old Testament, was foreshadowing the cross. And particularly the wood and the water acting together, the water of course representing baptism, that, uh, that we would be saved through the water and the wood. As it's, Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, it's the message of the cross that saved us in Mark 16 and 1 Peter chapter 3 that we're saved through baptism. So Justin continues from his previous quote. Uh, it says that he says, Leah was weak eyed, for the eyes of your souls, referring to the Jews, are excessively weak. Rachel stole the gods of Laban and hid them to this day, for we have lost our paternal and material gods. Jacob was hated for all time by his brother, and we now, and our Lord himself, are hated by you and by all men, though we are brothers by nature. Jacob was called Israel, and Israel has been demonstrated to be the Christ, who is and is called Jesus. If this is true, and there's just too many points of similarity that were seen by the early Christians to me to, to refute this. I, it seems to me this is, is overwhelming, very powerful. I will never read this story again the same way as before, before I, I heard that. It encourages me to look deeper whenever I'm reading familiar stories in the Old Testament. They're valuable insights that can be had from the early Christians. In this case, these are people who are just one or two generations removed from the apostles, the time of the apostles. One of the big takeaways from this story is seeing Satan. There's not that much about Satan in the Old Testament, but I believe he's appearing in this story as a rather major player in the story. And we need to see him today for what he is and has always been. He is our adversary. He is a major player in the drama of what's going on in this world the master deceiver, the liar, the cheat, and the master of the bait and switch, and we don't need to fall for that. Also to see through suffering and submission and righteousness that Jesus will triumph no matter how Satan changes his tactics. The Lord will continue to build his flock, and it will have some of all types of people from all colors in it. That Jesus always loved the church and he desired it for his bride. And that we can be saved through the good shepherd and become part of the flock that he is building from out of Satan's flock through the mystery of the water and the wood. Amen.